Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. I am flying solo today. My typical co-host, Doug, is taking a nap because uh, he is very tired, and I'm sure the same is true for many of you. So today we're going to be talking about voter fraud, corrupt Democrat political machines, election-related violence, and I refer, of course, to... Athens, Tennessee in the 1940s. And uh, to explain about the events uh, in a very interesting part of American history that's not well known, uh, we have with us Krista Rose, who is the author of several books, including uh, The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, and How World War II Veterans Won the Only Successful Armed Rebellion Since the Revolution. So Chris, welcome to the program. Josiah, thanks for having me. So before I want to get to the book, but uh, before we do that, I thought it would be uh, we typically ask the guests to give a little bit about their background. And uh, you have had several careers. Uh, you have several careers. <laughs> so maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, well, I'm a lawyer by training um, and uh, formerly senior litigation counsel to the Arizona Attorney General which was a, an awesome job where I got to defend the constitutionality of state statutes and uh, protect uh, guilty verdicts uh, for felonies on appeal and got to argue before our Supreme Court twice and in front of our Court of Appeals uh, upwards of 40 times. I'm a former professor of constitutional, international, and election law. And I also served as clerk of the Superior Court for Maricopa County, leading a team of 700 and administering uh, America's fourth largest trial court system. Okay. The book uh, is very interesting. And my knowledge of the Battle of Athens uh, is so slim that I don't actually know if I was familiar with it or not. I thought that I did. But then as I was reading your book, I thought, well, maybe this is maybe I was thinking of something else. And of course, we were talking about not Athens in Greece, but Athens, Tennessee. So uh, maybe just kind of set the like set the scene. Like what's what what's the background here? You talk about armed rebellion. What what is so interesting about this particular story? So I'm kind of with you, Josiah. It was this. It's a story that's out there. Knowledge is kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. That there was once an election in America. That these World War II veterans had taken up arms and successfully overthrown their local government in order to ensure a public and fair counting of the ballots. And that was all I knew about it. And really, that was all um, really anyone knew about it uh, before this book. And so I've always just kind of been fascinated by this story and can't even remember when I heard about it for the first time. It's just one of those things that has always been uh, on the periphery of my consciousness, something that happened in American history. And so I traveled to Athens, Tennessee, and I spoke to people all over the country who had um, firsthand knowledge of what had happened there. And so you had this group of World War II veterans who returned to Mackman County, Tennessee, after years uh, away fighting in Europe, fighting in the Pacific. And they found that they had won the freedom uh, for other countries, but 
lost it for themselves at home while they were gone. And so their, their community was in the grips of a corrupt political machine. And, you know, to use one example, law enforcement in this community was compensated based on how many arrests they could make. And so it was a very perverse incentive to just go out and arrest people for no reason. And so many of these veterans are arrested off the bus coming home from war because the deputies knew that they had mustering out pay on them and that they could afford to pay the fine and they could afford to pay the deputies' fees. And so um, they find that there's open gambling, open roadhouses and brothels in their hometown. I mean, it's really, it's like, it's like the... The Biff steals the almanac scenario in Back to the Future too. They just come back to this barely recognizable, horrible version of their homes. And they hear these stories from their parents and their little siblings and their grandparents about how for years the machine has stolen every election at gunpoint, that uh, they have quite brazenly rigged every election that's happened in the county uh, for a number of years. And so it's just a totally intolerable situation for these guys. And eventually they form what's called the GI Ticket. It's a nonpartisan uh, group, Democrats, Republicans, independents. And they realize that every other issue they have is secondary to having a representative government and to having a, a functional ethical government. And so they band together they announced the GI ticket and they run five veteran candidates for office to run the machine out of town, three Democrats, two Republicans, geographically balanced within the county, and four World War II veterans and one from World War I. And um, it's never a question of whether they'll get the most votes or whether they'll have to convince people to, to support them. That's beside the point. I mean, newspaper reporters were coming in from Chattanooga and Knoxville and doing man-on-the-street interviews and finding that literally no one who wasn't on the payroll of the machine was supporting the machine. Um, life had just it was just that bad for them in the county. They were very eager to support these GIs. And so the GIs run for office on what is a really unusual slogan in American history, your vote will be counted as cast. I'm not sure that any other campaign or candidate has ever had to adopt that as their slogan. Um, but it the, seem, Yeah, it would seem like uh, it might be, well, I don't know if that's an easy campaign promise to keep, but I suppose if you get elected, <laughs> you're going to say that it was kept. Yeah, that's right. And so, well, the concern was this. Um, every election for years, the voters had shown up, they'd encountered armed gunmen, the sheriff's deputies looked at your ballot before they put it in the ballot box. They were often forced to, forced to vote on see-through paper. And then at the end of the day, number of ballot boxes would be moved to the jail, would be moved to a bank building that was controlled uh, by the family of the boss of the machine or um, poll watchers would be forced out of the polling place at gunpoint. So this was the reality for them. And so really what the GIs needed was to convince them that if you show up, if you risk getting assaulted by these deputies or intimidated by these deputies, your vote will matter. We will ensure that the votes are counted fairly. And it's quite a, quite a bold promise to make in light of the way things had been going in the county for the past 10 years. Yeah, it's interesting. In in the book, you detail all the uh, the many different ways the uh, election irregularities that you might say uh, in these elections, and it's it's actually kind of amusing because you know 
I would think that if you're going to steal an election, you only need to steal it once, right? Uh, and in this case, you know, they're doing all sorts of things like telling people they can't vote or uh, kicking out the election judges or, you know, like blatant, blatantly, uh, you know, casting ballots or whatever. And then it, it, and then at the end, they just, uh, you know, go off and, and count the ballots themselves and don't show them to anybody and then say what the results are, you know? It's remarkable. (laughs) And, you know, I speculate in the book that it had to be calculated to demoralize the public. Because if you're just going to control the count at the end of the day, and the vote is going to be whatever you say it is, and no one's allowed to observe you count the ballots, what is the point of everything that happens throughout the day? What's the point of intimidating people at gunpoint? What's the point of threatening people? What's the point of a sheriff's deputy in the courthouse square offering money for votes? What's the point in taking the ballot box and moving it to a different location? All of this seems really gratuitous if you're just going to count the ballots however you want to anyway. So it must, if it has a purpose, it's to convince the public that no matter what you do, you will never win. This machine will never be counted out of office. So let's talk a little bit about the nature of the machine, because it seems, you know, I kind of got the impression uh, reading the book that they spent uh, most of their time stealing from people, but a a good minority of the time was just like randomly, I mean, not randomly shooting people, but kind of semi-randomly rampaging throughout uh, shooting and killing people. Uh, So like, how did that, how did that develop? And how did it come to have such a control over this town in Tennessee? Yeah. So first in 1936, Paul Cantrell wins an election against a calcified Republican regime. He's the Democrat. He's inspired by Franklin Roosevelt. He makes a promise uh, to end fee grabbing, which is uh, the term for the practice of arresting someone for the purpose of extracting a fine rather than for some legitimate motive. So he wants to end fee grabbing. Of course, fee grabbing does not end. There There are some... well-known cases of police brutality that I talk about in the book that happened, you know, within his first six, nine months in office. And then you get to the 1940 election where you have a polling place that gets shut down early in the day. It was a polling place that Cantrell had lost by 26 points two years earlier, shut down at 10 o'clock before most people get the chance to vote. People are assaulted by armed deputies at the polling place, and he wins a narrow re-election. And so I think things kind of gradually get worse because then you have Pearl Harbor, you have 3,500 young men from this county alone joining up to serve in the military. You have the 1940 election where the county board says, okay, we're going to use voting machines in McMinn County because... They keep a running tally. You can't swap them. They're 800 pounds. They're not easy for you to steal and move into the jail. So the the county board is dominated by Republicans, and they're tired of this election fraud. And so they, they vote to use voting machines, and that's entirely within their prerogative under Tennessee state law. 
And so the election commission, which is made up of two Democrats and one Republican, based on who the majority party is in the state of Tennessee, announced we're not using the voting machines, despite what the law says, despite what the county board has decided. So you have a number of locations where armed gunmen showed up at the polling places on election day and forced the voting machine out of the polling place. Whoever, whoever the custodian of the voting machine was would be forced out at gunpoint. Or they would simply show up with a ballot box and force anyone who wanted to vote to use the ballot box rather than the machine. They destroyed the machines in some cases. And so that's like the first instance where you don't just have something like something crazy happen at one polling place or cheating at the margins. This is where you have your first instance of, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened in America levels of voting fraud. And so flash forward to 42, when you've got 3,500 young men uh, from this county alone serving in the military. Um, and 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 then it's like a free-for-all. That's when you really have people being ordered out of polling places at gunpoint, not permitted to watch the count, um, watching, you know, sheriff's deputies offer raw bribes in exchange for voting the right way. Witnesses describe people putting stacks of ballots into ballot boxes. I should add, too, between 40 and 42, you know, the only check and balance on this machine was a Republican county board. And after the 40 elections, the county board was 15 to 2 Republican. Back, 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 back then, my impression, my impression was that the DOT would be Democrat dominated. dominated. The board was still majority. majority Republican, is that right? Yeah, so this is a part of Tennessee that had always been loyal to the Republican Party since the Civil War. So it's East Tennessee. This county in particular had voted heavily against secession. And so the Republicans had tended to be the majority party in this county in between the war and in 36 when Paul Cantrell gets elected sheriff. In 1940, the public elects a county board 15 to 2 Republican majority. And so Paul Cantrell, who is affiliated with Boss Crump out of Memphis, who really is by far the most powerful man in Tennessee. Wait, 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 wait. Boss Crump? Boss Crump. He was uh, the king of Tennessee. He, um, he was the head of a statewide political machine that controlled the legislature, the governor, the federal representatives, and the senators, completely controlled the judiciary of the state. And so with the Crump machine standing behind the ruling party in McMinn County, in McMinn County Tennessee, they really could get away with whatever they wanted to. And so after 1940, there's a bill in the Tennessee legislature to just eliminate the county board in McMinn County. Um, and so that 15 to 2 Republican county board goes away as a result of state legislation and replaced with a smaller board with the names of people who are um, Cantrell loyalists it, written into the legislation. So it, Cantrell was able to legislate the remaining opposition in his county out of office um, by legislative fiat. Yeah, that's, that's nice work if you can get it. Uh, <laughs> so you mentioned something that was interesting, which is that I, things were already pretty bad in 38 and 40, but it got really bad in 42 and 44 during the war. Do you think that uh, having most of the military age men gone made it easier 
for the machine to intimidate people or to get away with stuff because there just wasn't, you know, it's, it's, it's perhaps a lot easier, uh, you know, young, young guys are not as willing to like put up with crap. Right. You know, maybe a little bit more hot headed, a little bit more aggressive. Uh, do you think that that was kind of a factor or is it just kind of, what's going on at the same time. I think it certainly helped, right? That you had 3,500 young men of fighting age who were, you know, physically fit enough to join the military and serve in World War II who were just absent from the county, right? Uh, It's much easier to terrorize elderly people, to terrorize, you know, younger people, teenagers. And so it's just easier for these guys to get away with, with 3,500 GIs serving uh, elsewhere. Um, But, as you can see, when the GIs start coming back from war, it's not like uh, the machine falls apart the next day. You know, the machine is machine comes very close to stealing an election from these GIs, and really just came within inches of getting away with it, of just taking the election uh, away from the GIs, backed by the overwhelming majority of the public. So even then, it was absolutely no cakewalk. As I try and think of who who would you appeal to, you know, if you if you are in this county in Tennessee, you see all sorts of blatant election fraud, irregularity stuff going on, crimes, intimidation. You know, obviously it's the sheriff and the cops that are doing this, so you can't go to them. Uh, you had kind of indicated that the state was under the control of this boss Crump guy, who's <laughs> a great name. So you can't really go to them, but uh, I guess, you know, who, who, who would be next? Maybe the federal prosecutors, right? Someone like that. Like, who would you appeal to? Who, who did they try to appeal to next to try and do something about all this? Yeah, they know they're going to be totally out of luck when it comes to the governor, or state attorney general, or even the, the judiciary. And so they appeal to the Department of Justice. And one of the most exciting finds I came across for this book is in the it's in the National Archives. And if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's that room where they put the Ten Commandments at the end of the movie. Um, they are going to cut. That's where they put it. Um, and it's the same room. It's giant wall after wall of, of just old boxes with dusty manila envelopes. But there inside were thousands of affidavits and letters from the people of McMinn County over a period of years, testifying very specifically to their experiences participating in rigged elections, having guns pulled on them, of being assaulted, of having them and their family members be the subjects of retaliation. And so uh, really incredible first-person testimonials on what happened. And I was the first person in history ever to even request these files from the National Archives. And so... A couple of things when it comes to the Department of Justice. I think number one, they just weren't as invested in prosecuting local election crimes as they are today, right? Now, if there's any sense that there's fraud, you can get the Department of Justice Civil Rights section to look into it. It's considered very much to be a matter of federal purview, but the idea of county elections being a federal matter with no federal candidates on the ballot, that was a tough sell for them. I guess second, if you're also looking to be more charitable, you know, there's World War II going on, so they're distracted. They've got a war to fight. and But really three, and this is a more cynical, but I think this is at 
more cynical observation, but this is at play as well, is that Boss Crump controlled two senators. Boss Crump controlled the Tennessee, uh, the de- at least the Democratic delegation from Tennessee. Boss Crump controlled the Tennessee delegation at national conventions. And so if you're going to send federal agents into Crump's backyard and start messing with people who are allied with him, it could create problems for the White House, both for the Roosevelt White House and then for the Truman White House. And so I think all of those things were at play. Uh, you did have one Republican congressman who represented an overwhelmingly Republican district in eastern Tennessee, so Republican, in fact, that they couldn't steal it from him. And his name was John, Judge John J. Jennings Jr. He's known as the Five J's of Jellicoe for the time that he lived in. <laughs> Judge J. John, Judge John J. Jennings Jr., who was in Congress but preferred his old judicial title, he was relentless. So you find in his papers at UT Knoxville all kinds of letters and memos to a, a series of attorney generals and to FBI Director Hoover insisting that they do something about this rampant election fraud in McMinn County. And so a couple of low-level henchmen finally get served up, I think, just to kind of prove that they're doing something. Um, and so you get six apparatchiks who end up getting indicted. And there's some problems with the grand jury because it looks like the machine actually got to the grand jury. So it takes a while to indict them. And uh, they finally have, actually have to go to the, the grand jury at Winchester rather than Chattanooga because apparently the machine anticipated that they would go to the grand jury at Chattanooga. And and had had found a way to prevent them from indicting on what was a very obvious and straightforward case of election violations. So you get these guys to trial. The judge actually summarily dismisses charges against three of them on on things that were clearly questions for the jury uh, to decide guilt or innocence. Now we're down to three defendants who are getting prosecuted years after the fact. And they're convicted. It takes the jury two hours to convict them, and then the judge fines them to a penny. <laughs> so that yeah. is the federal response. Yeah, yeah. Is the is the judge judge connected to Crump as well, or? Yeah, exactly right. Uh, so this is Judge Dar, and every judge in Tennessee, you know, federal judges are selected. They're 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 recommended to the White House by the senators. And so Crump has two senators. Crump decides who becomes a federal judge in Tennessee. And so Judge Dodd was very much uh, a willing member of the Crump machine. In fact, I point out previous examples of the book where members of the Crump apparatus had been brought before him on criminal charges and let off uh, either completely or with nominal fines. You know, in one case... Um, there's a guy who actually is on the ticket with Paul Cantrell in the 1946 election, the one that results in the Battle of Athens. This guy, Burkett Ivins, was the head of the WPA, Works Progress Administration. It's a federal New Deal program trying to get people back to work. And so he decides as head of the WPA for the area, he's going to have people build a road to his farm. And so he dramatically increases the value of his farm, right? Um, and then he gets indicted for corruption, and the Judge Dar sentences him to fifty bucks. So it's a pretty good trade-off: the fifty bucks for however much he improved the value of his land by creating a massive public works project at taxpayer expense, 
to, to, to increase his net worth. This was the kind of person who'd come before Judge Dar and, and, and get a slap on the wrist for it. So Judge Dar, very much operating here in bad faith and in service to the machine, and of course lets off three vote violators completely, and then the three who get convicted, they get, they get sentenced to a penny. Yeah, yeah. So you have all these GIs, they're off overseas fighting uh, the Nazis and uh, the Japanese, and then they come back uh, and they start to get, you know, treated the way that the local machine has been treating everybody for a long time, and they don't want to, they don't want to put up with it anymore. So what, what happens then? So they start talking about this GI ticket, they nominate four veterans of World War II and a fifth from World War I. They approach the Republican Party about getting behind them rather than dividing the opposition to the machine. Otto Kennedy, who's the chairman of the county Republican Party, who basically leads the opposition to the machine during the war years, he readily agrees to back the GI ticket. In fact, he, he had trouble finding people to run as a Republican. There were people who were scared to show up for Republican meetings. So getting behind the GIs seems like a pretty good idea. You got the unified opposition now behind these these five uh, candidates, and immediately the machine signifies they're not going to lose this election. The GI. Yeah. Oh, what were they running for? They're five candidates for. Yeah, so it's sheriff, which is really the most. That's the most powerful job. That's the job where you can hire and fire deputies as you please. You basically are the law in Mackinac County. It's the greatest source of wealth uh, because you you get to you get to put money right in your pocket for who gets arrested and who gets housed in the jail. You decide what laws to enforce and what not to enforce. You decide which businesses get to operate and which ones get the protection of the law or which ones get closed down. So sheriff by far is the most po- powerful position. Then you have trustee, which is basically the the treasurer for the county. You have registrar of deeds. You have the clerk of the court of general jurisdiction. Then you have the clerk for the, the county court, which is the most places call it a county board, the county legislature. So you have five candidates for office. Sheriff is really the important one here. So they decide that they're going to get their they, – they get their ticket together. They get the – uh, Republicans to not oppose them. Um, but, you know, the the nature of uh, your slogan being your vote will be counted as cast is that they don't control anything. So how can they how can they deliver on that promise when clearly your votes are not counted as cast? Oh, well, I think they pretty clearly broke their promise right around the time the polls opened on election day. This idea that they were going to be able to somehow guarantee a fair election for people who hadn't had one in years actually turns out to be wrong. So the day opens, you know, the machine had about 16 deputies on a day-to-day basis. They had all the municipal police departments in the county under their control, maybe another 14 special deputies that they could call on at any time. Because of their association with the corrupt network, they could always count on the state police if they needed it. And of course, although this never remotely became necessary, they could call in the National Guard if they needed to. So on election day, they make sure that they have about 300 men under arms, more than 250 men, maybe as many as 300 men under arms. And now the GIs are really out of luck. They're badly outgunned. You've got 
special deputies from other counties. You have men who were deputized for this particular election who had just been released from prison. Some of them have been released from prison just to work as a deputy in this election. So <laughs> you've got heavily armed men surrounding every polling place, letting voters in very slowly, looking over people's shoulders as they're casting ballots. They arrested a poll watcher named Bud Evans at the beginning of the day. He was a, a two-time Purple Heart recipient. He was working as a poll watcher. He said, let me see the ballot box to make sure it's empty before we begin voting. He got beaten up, brought to jail. Walter Ellis is the poll watcher at the courthouse. He pointed out that someone was voting illegally. He got beaten up. He ended up in a cell next to Evans. And so throughout the day, the poll watchers are totally unable to you know, raise any hay about what they're seeing and what the machine is doing. At about three o'clock in the afternoon, a deputy shoots an African-American gentleman by the name of Tom Gillespie for trying to exercise his right to vote. And um, this was a county where Tom Gillespie had never had trouble voting. I know you're thinking, people look at this and they say, well, it's a racial issue. It's, it's the South. It's the 1940s. But actually, Tom Gillespie had never had any trouble voting before that day. Uh, he voted in every election. And this particular election, because he was supporting the GI ticket, the deputy picked him out and decided he was going to shoot him um, for, for trying to cast a ballot for the GIs. And so the GIs were really, the people in the courthouse square, the public, the GIs are really incensed about this act of violence against Mr. Gillespie. You have Bob Harrell, who is a, a GI poll watcher at the Dixie Cafe polling place. He points out uh, there's an illegal vote about to be cast. He gets clubbed on the head. He gets knocked unconscious and beaten on the ground by a deputy named Minnis Wilburn. Minnis is per- Minnis. Minnis. <laughs> Minnis is perhaps the worst. They just have great names. They have, there's nothing but great names in this book. If there's no, no, you should read this book for the great great area period and and area names that you will find in it. And Minnis Wilburn is one of those fantastic names. Wilburn is probably the deadliest of all the men who work for the machine. So when when Wilburn actually dies years later, his own mother said, now he's in hell. So you had a guy whose own mother was sure that he was in hell. She said that moments after he died. He's a mean guy. And so Bob Harrell's lucky he didn't kill him. Bob Harrell ends up in the hospital, not before the deputies steal his wallet. Uh, including his photograph of his little girl that he'd carried with him in Europe. So all throughout the day, the GIs are just getting crushed. Their supporters are getting assaulted, intimidated, one case shot. You have two GIs, Shy Scott and Ed Vestal, who are held hostage in the Waterworks polling place while a fraudulent count is in process. And they have to try to escape with their lives and nearly die trying to get out of that polling place. So it looks like everything is lost. And it looks like being able to guarantee that your vote will be counted as cast is probably the least likely thing that these guys will be able to do. It just turned out to be wrong. And what happens is, you you know, I don't want to spoil the ending, but these facts are commonly known. And I actually talk about at least this much in the prologue. You have about 20 guys who are left downtown at the end of all this. They said, you know, we have to keep this promise. We promised people if they showed up, if they risked retaliation from the machine, that we'd give them a fair count. And we fought overseas for this right to vote and for this right to determine our own future at the ballot box. 
And so they arm themselves, including a robbery at the National Guard Armory. They arm themselves and they marched on the jail and demanded their ballot boxes uh, be brought out and publicly counted. When this demand wasn't met, they opened fire and there's a six-hour firefight in the middle of an American city in 1946 between these GIs and the sheriff and his men. All right. Well, we'll we'll leave it as a as a cliffhanger there. Um, very, although uh, there is a, a an element that is tr- uh, available in the subtitle of the book. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I suspect that you know uh, uh, the forces of Crump are not going to not going to win. But uh, for you know for the details or whatever, uh, definitely check it out. Um, I did want to ask a couple of you know, broader questions. Uh, one, just about, uh, this is, this is your fifth book, I believe. And, uh, your, your previous books are mostly focused on, you know, different elements of 19th century history, uh, a lot of stuff involving Congress and the presidency, future presidents, that sort of thing. So how did you how did you get turned on to this as a topic and and just in general how do you how do you decide what you want to write about? So I wrote my first book Founding Rivals about this congressional race between James Madison and James Monroe that if it had gone differently would have resulted in America not getting its bill of rights and probably not staying together uh, at the beginning you know at the beginning of time of the founding. I write about things that I want to know about and things that I want to read about that I can't find elsewhere. And so just as a, you know, as a history junkie and history reader for many years before I ever tried writing and really you, you write about the, you have to spend so much time with a subject as the author, you know, if you pick up a book and it's not the greatest book, maybe you're stuck with it for a few hours or maybe you're stuck with it for a few days or you can just put it down. But if it's the book that you're actually under contract to write about, like you really have to be interested in telling the story here. And so I write about the things that I would want to read about as a history junkie. And I think as you know, when I started out, I thought that the presidents were history, that the history of the United States was like the history of its leadership, the history of the presidents, history of important people. And I think the the further I get into it, the more I realize that History is actually the story of people like Bill White, who was a member of who who was a 17 year old who lied about his age after Pearl Harbor, who served in the first offensive action of World War II by the Americans on Florida Island, who fought in Guadalcanal, who fought on Tarawa, who came back and found an intolerable situation in his county, and who is the ringleader of the only successful rebellion in American history since the Revolution. History really is the story of people like him, at least as much as the presidents, and I would argue more so. And so I'm really more interested in stories like this about, you know, everyday people who don't become president, but who either individually or cumulatively impact and change the course of history. All right. And so what is next for you? What What's your next project? My next project actually is starting a podcast. So, All right. I can tell you that's a great idea. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. So one of the best parts of my job as a historian is that I get to read old newspapers. It's part of my gig, right? I mean, imagine getting paid to sit and read newspapers from a different era all day. Yeah, I love it. 
and I'm highly distractible. So if I see a headline I like, I'm going to read the article. And in fact, that's where some really good ideas come from. If you um, are a fan of Unbroken or Seabiscuit, you know, the author, the author was reading the newspaper, researching Seabiscuit, and saw an article about Louis Samperini, this Olympian who had been held as a POW by the Japanese and decided to make it the subject of her next book. So I paid close attention to these other articles, not just for my own interest, but also you never know when you're going to find something that you want to write about or research. And so while I was reading about the newspaper from 1946, and there's all these great stories about these homecomings and reunions and birth announcements and wedding announcements, I found a story about a phantom Marine. The headline was about a phantom Marine. It was clearly referencing previous day's coverage. So I went back and I put in the word phantom Marine into a newspaper database. And I actually found that this was a very big story. All the wire services had covered this in January 1946. It's about William Willard Langston, who was a Marine who was declared killed in action on Iwo Jima on March 7th, 1945, and then who was credibly cited in his hometown of Newport, Arkansas, in January of 1946. So uh, many witnesses interacted with him, people he'd grown up with, people he knew well, interacted with him over a course of two days, and then he disappears again. And so I couldn't stop. I really had to stop work on the fighting bunch for like three days while I shook every tree. I found the end of the national coverage, which kind of cuts off abruptly, I said, well, you know, the local newspapers probably will carry this story and they'll have to carry it to its conclusion because it affects the people who are, you know, the subscribers. Like it's, these are community newspapers. This is what's happening here. Got a lot of details out of those local newspapers, but this is a mystery that never resolved. And so I actually have made contact with the family of William Langston and interviewed the family. And I've FOIA'd and ordered every record in the federal government that you could think of. And lots of interesting clues, but no resolution. And so I'm hoping that this new podcast, The Phantom Marine, which I think this podcast, our our talk is coming out on Monday. The Phantom Marine will be available on Monday for the first time, episode one, hoping that I can connect with some people and perhaps together we can bring some resolution uh, to this mystery. You know, his mother was a gold star mother who went to her grave not knowing whether her son was alive or dead. And if he was alive, what had happened to him? And so... Um, it's just one of these, you know, we talked about why do I write books? You work with an idea that you have, you know, that you have to fully research and, and know the answer to, right? It's got to be something you're really interested and invested in. That's how I feel about the story of the Phantom Marine. I just don't think it would work well as a book. I think it works very well in the podcast format. All right. The book is The Fighting Bunch, available now. The podcast, The Fighting Marine. The Phantom Marine. Uh, Marine, excuse me, the Phantom Marine, also available when this comes out. The guest has been Chris DeRose. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Josiah, great talking with you. Thanks for having me on.